Well, I hope you all had a fantastic Easter celebration last weekend. Um, uh, Easter is, is such a great time of year in the church, uh, and really it's because it's the climax uh, of the church calendar, isn't it? It's, it's, the, it's the event in which the entire Old Testament drives towards. Uh, it's the event the entire Gospels drive, all four Gospels drive towards. It's the, it's the climax of, our, of, of, the, of the Christian year. And it's the foundation of the New Testament faith that, that most of us profess. Our last, for the last couple weeks, we've been looking at the journey of Christ towards the cross. And particularly last week, we looked at Passion Week, right? The, the Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, Easter. And Passion Week is filled with so much. It, we see the suffering Savior. We see the darkness of the crucifixion. And then we also see the hope of the resurrection that comes at Easter. It's a big deal for the church. Easter is also a time in the world in which many people return to church. You've heard it before that there, there, there's a group of people called, uh, that, that come to church just on Christmas and Easter, right? That people come back to church uh, to, to check it out again. And that's because Easter reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus, and it, it ought to get us excited. Hopefully you were excited during the celebration that we had here at Ivanrest last week. If you celebrated in a different church, hopefully you experienced that as well. Easter gets us going again. And then there's this week the week after Easter. The buzz has died down, life has returned to normal again, and we begin to reflect on our own experiences of Easter, and really we begin to reflect on our own experiences of faith. We begin to ask ourselves, oh, maybe we came back to church for the first time in a while. Why did we do that? What do we believe and why? Do we, do we actually have the hope that we got excited about last week? And for some of us, that's tough. And so today, what I want to do is I want to take a look at a story that reflects on some of that. I want to take a look at two of Jesus' followers who lived through Passion Week. And I want to take a look at their faith journey and see how we can relate it to our own. They had been there for all the hubbub. They had been there for Jesus' life, his crucifixion. And now, that, now it's after. And they don't know what to do with it. So I want to look at their story. Their story is told in Luke 24. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke 24. We're going to begin at verse 9, which is kind of the, uh, the preface to what we're going to be looking at for most of the time. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 24 the whole time. We're going to jump to a couple different places, so make sure you mark Luke 24 and don't let that go away. Uh, we're going to start at verse 9. Luke 24, verse 9. Luke 24, verse 9, which says this. When they, they being the women, came back to the tomb, back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others who had told this to the apostles. But they, being the apostles, did not believe the women, because their words seemed, their words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So this kind of sets the stage for the rest of our story. What we see here is we see the women had just visited the tomb. They see it empty. They actually speak with an angel, and now they've run back to tell the disciples about what has happened. Now, maybe you know this and maybe you don't, but it's important to recognize that when we talk about the disciples, usually in the Bible, we're not just talking about the twelve. Now, there were 12 disciples that were part of the inner circle of Jesus, but there were many other disciples that were part of this larger group, and we see that in a number of places in the New Testament. Maybe you knew that 
already, maybe you didn't, but that matters in particular for this story because the two men we're going to look at later would be part of that outer circle of disciples. So the women run and they tell the story to the men. And the men look at them like they're crazy. They're like, this is, this is impossible. There's no way that this could be. This is not part of their framework. People don't come back. Angels don't talk to people like that. They're saying, we hear you, but we don't believe you. Except for Pete. He doesn't know what to think. Peter, who we know is still very torn up about his denial of Jesus, we actually see that story play itself out in John, he gets up immediately and he runs to the tomb to see if what these women said was true. When he gets there, he does see evidence of what the women said being true. He sees the linens, he sees the tomb open, but he doesn't see Jesus at that point, and so he doesn't completely buy their story, does he? The Bible tells us he goes back to the rest of the group still wondering what happened. It doesn't, say, it doesn't say that he sees the evidence that the women said and then he buys it and he believes them. No, it says he still wonders, man, what happened? It kind of sets the stage for the rest of the story. So let's keep going. Verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talk and discuss these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and do you not know the things that have happened in these last days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, a powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this has taken place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Let's pause there for just a minute. In this section, there is a whole lot going on here, and I want to take a minute to set the stage to get the context to see if we can understand uh, what these guys are going through. So we've got these two disciples on the, on the day of the resurrection. This is the day of the resurrection, later on that day. And they're walking down the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. Now, we're not technically in the geography section anymore. We've been doing that for a while. But uh, the geography matters a little bit. Um, Emmaus is about seven miles west of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is in this region right here. Emmaus would be in this region right there. Um, it's about seven miles west. And so we have these two guys walking towards Emmaus. And they're talking about everything that's just happened, right? Presumably talking about Jesus' life, his trial, his crucifixion. And we do know from the end of this passage that they had been there when the women had reported earlier, meaning they were probably talking about that too, right? They said that these women amazed us. They come tell this amazing story. Uh, and so I'm sure they were talking about that as well. And so why does that matter? Well, it matters because it tells us two things. First thing that we see right at the beginning of this passage is that these men had either been with Jesus for most of his ministry, or at least some of his ministry, meaning they had heard him speak, they had seen the miracles he performed, 
We know that they were with the apostles when the women told him about the resurrection, meaning they were part of this smaller group of disciples that stayed together even after the death of Jesus. They had experienced things. They had seen it firsthand. And yet, the second thing we see here is that they're walking away from the city. They're walking away from the followers of Christ. You see, these two men on the road to Emmaus had lost hope that Jesus was the Messiah. They couldn't believe it anymore, and so they walked away. And honestly, to their credit, they had good worldly reason to believe that. You see, before, during, and after the time of Jesus, there were many people who claimed to be Messiah. Right? The Bible actually names three of them. There are two in Acts 5 and one in Acts 21. All three of those guys, along with a number of others, are also recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus. So let's take a look at these guys here a minute. Take a look at what they might mean for our story. Keep your finger here in Luke and turn with me to Acts 5.33. Acts 5.33, which says this, When they, being the Sanhedrin, heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that these men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody. About 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. His followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So quick context in this story. So Peter and some of the other apostles had been teaching in Jerusalem when they ticked off the Sanhedrin so much that the Sanhedrin wanted to kill them. Uh, But one guy stands up and says, Hey, everybody, relax. Everybody calm down a little bit because, guys, we've seen this before. This is nothing new, right? He goes, remember, remember Thedos. Very similar to this. He rose up, Rome put him down, he's gone now. Remember Judas the Galilean, same thing. This is not new. This is something that we've seen before over and over again. Let me just tell you a little bit about each of these guys. The first one mentioned here is a guy named Thedos. He uh, claimed to be the Messiah around 45 AD, which is about 12 years after Jesus. And he had gathered about 400 people to, uh, in a revolt against Rome during that time. Now, his whole plan, he said, he said we're going to attack Rome and we'll be able to flee across the Jordan River. He's actually said, when we get to the Jordan River, it will part for us like it did for Moses. We'll go across and Rome won't be able to follow us, is what he preached. So, a band of about 400 men rise up against Rome. They attack them, run away to the Jordan, and when they get there, it doesn't part. Of course it doesn't, Right? And so Rome closes down on them, destroys them, kills Theodos, kills all of the people following him. So that's the first one Gamaliel is talking about here. He says, we've seen this before. Next, he says there was this guy named Judas the Galilean. 
Now, Judas the Galilean began his teaching career about 10 years before the birth of Jesus. This passage is a little confusing. He says next, but he also says it was during the time of the census. Well, if you remember, the time of the census is around the time Jesus was born, right? Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because of the census. Same census we're talking about here. So Judas the Galilean began his teaching career about 10 years before Jesus was born, and his messiahship kind of came into play at about 6 AD. Now, his big deal was that he taught it was taught the people that it was shameful for them to pay tribute to Rome and accept them as their mortal masters after, as, after having God as their Lord. He had this big anti-Roman platform, which, is, which a lot of people in Israel liked. Israel was kind of known for revolting often. They revolted against the Greeks. They revolted against Rome very regularly. And so he got people to gather to him because of that. But to make matters a little bit more confusing, he also had this guy, a false prophet named Sadak, who traveled along with him. Now, we're not, we don't know this for sure, but there are there's rumors that this guy named Sadak claimed to be Elijah, right? Elijah coming back. Which makes this whole thing a little bit more confusing. Because you see, the Old Testament taught that Elijah would come before the Messiah. We know that in the case of Jesus, that's John the Baptist. Well, we've got this other guy now who also has a prophet proclaiming himself to be Elijah and proclaiming Judas Galilee, the Judas the Galilean to be the Messiah. So, if you read through the Old Testament, you realize Elijah is supposed to come first. Check for Judas. There's one thing. Second, we know that the, the Old Testament taught, and we see it in Matthew 2.23 as well, that the Messiah is supposed to come from Nazareth in Galilee. The guy's name is Judas the Galilean, Right? Second thing, if you're paying attention to the Old Testament, all of a sudden Judas looks like a pretty decent Messiah. He comes from Galilee. He's got an Elijah that goes before him, even though he's false. And so you could see why people would fall for the teaching of Judas. The enemy loves to do that. He took little bits and pieces of the Old Testament prophecy and applied them to these other false messiahs. Well, anyway, Judas was a very religious person as well. He's also a very aggressive one. He's religious in the sense of the Pharisees being religious. It's very likely that Judas the Galilean was one of or the founder of a group called the Zealots, which you might have heard of before, right? The Zealots actually persist throughout Jesus' life as well. Actually, one of Jesus' disciples, is the Twelve, was a, was a former Zealot, right? What the Zealots were were a religiously militant group that existed throughout the time of Jesus, now, the zealots themselves persevere longer than Judas does. Uh, Judah's messiahship, if you will, comes to an end when he leads a group of zealots against Rome in the name of God, but is defeated, and his followers are either killed or dispersed, which is also what we saw there in Acts. So before the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel stands up and says, hey guys, everybody relax. We've seen this before. This is nothing new. We've, we saw it with Judas. We saw it with Theodos. And those aren't the only two, either. If you were to go to Acts 21.37, you see another story. Acts 21.37 says, As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something? Do you speak Greek? The commander replied, Aren't you the Egyptian who started the revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness some time ago? So we've got Theodos, we've got Judas the Galilean, and then we've got this unnamed Egyptian Jew. Right? 
Uh, now, we don't know this guy's name. We also know there's some mystery surrounding him. Uh, but Josephus actually talks about him quite a bit, and we know from the commander here that he was, he was influential during the time of Paul. So this unnamed Egyptian Jew first was coming out of Egypt, which if we're tracking these prophecies coming true kind of thing, that's another thing that should trigger something for us. As you remember in the story of Jesus, out of Egypt I will call my son. Well, here we go. We've got another Jewish person claiming to be Messiah coming out of Egypt, right? Well, anyway, we have this Egyptian Jew who was able to gain a large following. The Roman officer in Acts says it was about 4,000. Uh, Josephus actually wrote that it was 30,000. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Either way, we have a person who's able to gather together a quite large army. Four or 30,000 is a lot. He comes out of Egypt, he marches on Jerusalem, and he was defeated. But the Egyptian wasn't killed, uh, which is why the Roman officer is confused in Acts 21. Actually, this is how Josephus tells the story. He says, Now, a man came from Egypt to Jerusalem about this time, saying that he was a prophet or the Messiah, and urging the common crowd to go with him to the Mount of Olives, which lies opposite Jerusalem at a distance of something in Latin that I can't read. For he claimed that from there he was meant to show them how, at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall, through which he promised to make for them an entrance into Jerusalem. But when Felix learned of these events, he ordered the soldiers to take up their weapons and rushed, rushing out of Jerusalem with many horsemen and foot soldiers, he struck out against those who surrounded the Egyptian. He killed 400 of them, captured 200 alive, but the Egyptian his, himself escaped the battle unnoticed. So again, we have a third person now. All three of these people mentioned in the Bible who all claimed to be the Messiah, and there were others as well. There was a guy named Athronagus. Uh, he, he, he came around in about 3 AD. He was a shepherd turned rebel leader. Um, he actually led an attack at Emmaus, where these guys are going. He led a little guerrilla force in Emmaus, and he actually won. He beat back the Romans in that particular space. After that, he led a guerrilla force for about two years during the reign of Herod Archelaus, which is the son of Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Eventually, he was captured, he was killed, his, his, uh, his followers were dispersed. There was also a guy named Simon of, Simon of Perea, who about 4 AD led a rebellion right after the death of Herod the Great. He also was captured, killed, and his followers were dispersed. So we have this constant cycle of messi messiahs calling themselves messiahs, gathering a bunch of believers to them, believers in their messiahship. They, we have them raising rebellions. We, having those, we have those rebellions being put down and the followers being dispersed. It's a cycle that was going on and on and on. So why does that matter for us? Why does that matter to the story of the, of the men on the road to Emmaus? It matters because it affected the way that people saw Jesus as well. We saw in our Acts passage that Gamaliel stood up in front of the Sanhedrin and says, guys, relax, we've seen this before. This Jesus guy is probably like all the others. He's probably like Thetis. He's probably like Judas the Galilean. He's probably like that Egyptian Jew. He's probably like Athronagus or Simon of Perea. He's going to get put down. This is all going to go away. We're wasting our time on this. And we see that that kind of thinking was what our two men had as well. Look at verse 21 of our Luke passage. These men said, we had hoped. Notice the past tense there. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
These two guys, like the Sanhedrin, had lived through many of the people we just talked about. They had seen Messiahs rise and fall. They had seen each of these Messiah's followers, which they were, disbanded and in many cases killed. They had hoped Jesus was different, that he actually was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but in their minds they didn't believe that he was. And so they were walking away from the movement. They were leaving before something terrible happened to them. So on their walk, they were working back over all the things they had witnessed in their minds, talking to each other about them, talking about Jesus' teachings, his miracles, what had happened during Passion Week. And during that conversation, Jesus walks up to them. And it's interesting what God does in that situation. Now, the NIV in verse 16 said they were kept from recognizing him. Now, Every once in a while, it's good to read the Bible in multiple translations because certain things are missed in some and not in others. And in this case, actually, I think the NIV misses something really important here that many other translations don't. If you were to read this passage in the ESV or the Amplified or even the New American Standard, uh, it, it would say, it wouldn't, instead of saying they were kept from recognizing him, it would say their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The original Greek has the word for eyes too, so I'm not 100% sure why the NIV leaves that out doesn't seem to matter all that much now, but keep that in your minds as we go forward, because it will in a little bit. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So we've got these guys, they're walking and talking, and Jesus walks up to them, and he asks them what they're talking about. Now the reaction in verse 17 says something, doesn't it? It says that they actually stop walking and are visibly upset. So they don't just keep walking and flippantly tell him what had gone on, they stop and it says their faces are downcast. I can imagine that if you were 100 yards away from them, if you can't see what's going on at all, you would still be able to tell they're upset. They actually physically stop and look downcast. You can see it, right? Which means that these guys aren't over what's happened yet. They aren't settled yet. They haven't, they haven't just completely wrought, wrote Jesus out of their mind and completely leaving. It's something that's still churning in them. They're even a little annoyed at Jesus, who they don't realize is Jesus. They're a little annoyed at him because he doesn't seem to know what's happened, right? Uh, Cleopas is the, one of the guy's names, and he essentially looks at Jesus and he says, have you been living under a rock? Do you really not know what's happened in Jerusalem for the past few days? We know that, this, that, that, that Jesus' death and crucifixion was a big enough event that it made histories all over the world. A lot of historians recorded that event, some in more detail than others, but it was a big enough deal that it made ripples throughout the Roman world. And so Cleopas is looking at this guy that they don't know and going, where have you been? Are you, you seriously not know the things that have happened? And Jesus just says, what things? And so take a look at the response with me. Jesus says, what things? And they say, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and the people. Now, that may not seem like a very significant statement at first glance. But do you see what they're saying here? They, these two men had hoped Jesus was the Messiah. But when they're asked to describe him, how do they identify him? Not as the Messiah, but as a prophet, right? As a powerful prophet, great, right? They, they did believe he was powerful, they did believe he was from God. He was a powerful prophet before God and men. But they couldn't get over that last hump, could they? These guys had seen Jesus do amazing things. They had lived through it. 
They had heard the testimony of the women at the tomb. They had even gone to the tomb to see that the women were being truthful about the tomb being open and Jesus' body not being there. They saw the open tomb. They saw the the linens, but they said they did not see Jesus. So they couldn't dive all in. And we get that because they had seen all of this before. To them, Jesus was just like Judas or Simon or Athronones. They wanted so desperately to believe Jesus was different, but how could he be? He'd been killed. It's over. It's time to go home. The two men had hoped Jesus was the one, but they were walking away. And as they were walking away, something amazing happens to them. Jesus comes along. Notice he comes to them. As they're walking away, he goes out and comes and gets them, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. He comes alongside of them. He listens to their story. He hears how they thought Jesus was something that he wasn't. He hears how they had misunderstood the person that they were following. Now, to their credit, so did the rest of the 12. And what does he do? He says he listens to their story, and he begins to teach them from Scripture about who he really was. He teaches them about all what the Messiah looks like through the entire Old Testament. And as he does, he begins to renew their hope. Take a look at the story. Verse 28, they approached the village to which they were going. Jesus continued on as if he were going to go further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened scripture to us? You see, we have two men who are visibly upset over the death of Jesus, who had lost hope that Jesus was the Messiah, but we see not entirely. As Jesus begins to tell tell them about the Messiah from scripture, they begin to perk up a bit. Because in their hearts, they wanted to believe Jesus was who he said he was. Now remember how we had talked about earlier how their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And I said it would matter. This is where it matters. We have these two guys. They're walking with this guy who they can't visibly see who he is. Right? With their eyes, they can't visibly tell who he is. To them, it's just a normal guy. Their eyes cannot see Jesus. But we see from this passage, their hearts can. Their eyes can't see who Jesus is, but their hearts can. Because Jesus begins to teach them about who he really is, and they can't get enough of it. They want more. They want him to keep teaching. They're they're listening to him the whole way they're walking. And so when they get to Emmaus, Jesus is going to continue on, but these guys are having none of it. The Bible says they urged him strongly to stay. They wanted more. They weren't going to let this guy go until he gave it to them. And so Jesus stays. He breaks bread, their eyes are open, and their response says so much. Throughout the entire walk, their eyes were unable to recognize Jesus, but their hearts burned in testimony to him. Once they realized that Jesus had been with them the entire time, they essentially said, we should have known. Right? Our hearts were screaming to us, but we missed it. Right? God, didn't we know something was going on? We just didn't recognize what it was. Okay, so so what? 
It's a nice story, but what do we do with all of that? Why does it matter? And there really are two major things that I want you to take away from this story. First, this story testifies to the, to the historical truth of the resurrection. As we've already said, in Judea, during this time, there were many messiahs, each who rose up for a time and were put down, each of which had disciples or followers who, their, when their messiah was killed or put on the run, they were either killed themselves or disbanded and gave up the cause. And we see from this story that that was no different for the Jesus followers. The two men we see on the road to Emmaus were leaving the movement, just like every other Messiah's followers had. The two men had hoped, but now that was over, and it was time to get back to normal life. But this story is different from the rest, isn't it? Because they don't make it home, do they? They, along with many other followers of Jesus, stayed with the movement. Even though, even though we, be, we know that their journey began with a whole lot of doubt. The Jesus movement isn't a plot for power. These guys, along with the apostles, were confused. They were disheartened. And even in some cases, they were hopeless after the death of Jesus. You see, from a history perspective, if there was ever a movement that should have died with the loss of its leader, it was this one. The Jesus movement, from a worldly perspective, had the least left over after Jesus' death than any of the other rebellions had. Right? The Jesus followers didn't have any militia or army, did they? Where a lot of those other ones did. Right? You, had, you come in with 4,000 people, some, only 600 of them were arrested or killed. That leaves a, quite a bit of a militia left, doesn't it? Jesus' movement doesn't have any of that. They don't have any resources either. Some of these other movements had money. Jesus' movement has none. They didn't have any political or social influence either. A lot of these other movements still had people behind them, even if it was underground. But in this story itself, these guys say our own leaders turned Jesus over. They had no political or social capital at all. Rome hated them, and so did the Jewish leaders. You see, the thing with the Jesus movement was it was entirely reliant, completely reliant on Jesus, right? After he died, there's nothing left. The entire movement was based on a person, on him. There's nothing left while he's, if he's gone. When Jesus died, from a worldly perspective, the movement should have died right then and there. There isn't anything left. But it doesn't, does it? Actually, the exact opposite happens. The way, as it's called in the New Testament, explodes all over the world. It continues to grow even as the pressures of the world press back on it harder and harder. See, of the, of the 11 remaining apostles, 10 of them were martyred. And the only one who wasn't John spent most of his life in jail. And yet, through persecution through torture, none of them ever gave up their story. Just think about how amazing that is for a minute. How hard would it be to get three people to agree on a lie for long term? Talking their entire lives. 30-year-old guys, the rest of your life, you three have to agree on a lie. Oh, and by the way, you're going to have to continue to agree on that while you're being tortured and killed. 
Three seems pretty unlikely, right? How much more unlikely was it that would it be then for 11 to do that? Actually, it's 13 if you call, count Paul and Matthias who replaced Judas. You see, we have these 13 guys all who proclaim the exact same story until the day they die through severe persecution in a culture in which they have witnessed all of these other messiahs come and go. In a culture in which they have seen all of the other followers of these people just disband when their leader is gone. And yet none of them do. None of them leave. They all stick to their story. The only way that happens is if if they have experienced something amazing, right? Like seeing the risen Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit. That might do it. You see, this story testifies to the true historicity of the resurrection. And that's important for some of us. Right? Some of, for some of you, that bolsters your faith. It gets you excited. You realize you're in the spot you're supposed to be. And that's great. Hold on to that. But that's not all that's told in this story. There's another truth that is equally, if not more important here as well. This story testifies to the historicity of the resurrection. But it also testifies to the relational truth of the resurrection. You see, some of you here are like the two guys on the road. You've been around the Jesus story for some time. Some of you a long time. Others of you a short one. You've heard the stories. You've seen other people's belief in those stories. And you want to hope. But something is holding you back from fully diving in. Maybe you had high hopes for Jesus. He was supposed to free you from an oppression. In the case of the men on the road, it was Rome. From you, who knows what it was. Or he was supposed to cure that disease. Or he was supposed to stop that event from happening. Or cause a different one to happen. Or maybe he just wished he had been less confusing in the way that he taught. Whatever it may be, maybe you've struggled in your faith life because Jesus wasn't exactly who you thought he was. Well, then this story is your story. You see, we have two men who had followed Jesus for years, believing he was going to free them from Rome. Or maybe they weren't quite exactly sure what he would do, but they knew it wasn't that. He wasn't supposed to die. They knew that. And so they began to walk away. They began to wander away. They began to distance themselves from fellow believers and the message of Christ. They were headed back to their worldly, normal lives. Perhaps you feel like or have felt like those two men. You feel like you're drifting away or you're confused about Jesus so you're distancing yourself from fellow believers. If that's the case for you, I want you to look closely at this story and I want you to look particularly, I want you to look closely at Jesus himself. Because as these two men walk away from the community of believers, Jesus goes out to get them. He meets them where they are on the road and he walks with them for quite a distance, even as they're walking in the wrong direction. He speaks with them. He teaches them about who he really is, who he's always been, who the scriptures say that he is. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't tell them to turn around immediately or else. Now, he does tell them they're wrong or foolish, but he walks with them for quite a while constantly teaching them, constantly loving them, loving them in a way that makes their hearts burn. 
Now, their eyes couldn't see them, that's true. But their hearts could feel him. As they walked with him, as they listened to them, their hope was restored bit by bit, and the truth of who he was was revealed to them more and more as they walked. Until in the end, their eyes were open, confirming what their hearts knew deep down the entire time. Confirming the fact that Jesus had not left them, that he truly was alive, and he had been walking with them for miles, even though they didn't know it. So perhaps you're wandering right now. We're struggling to hold on to hope. We're struggling to get over that hump. Ask Jesus to walk with you. Be open to walking with him. Be open to hearing what he has to teach you about himself. Allow him to rekindle your hope through scripture, through fellow believers around you. Allow your, hope, your heart to be open to his love. It's a love that causes burning in, inside. Because when you do, it changes everything. Let's look at the end of this story. Verse 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true. The Lord has risen and he's appeared to Simon. The two told what, they had, what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. You see, when we're open to letting Jesus walk with us, when we're open, open to letting him teach us about himself, even if it's different than what we originally thought, when we're open to allow ourselves to feel his love, it changes us. It can't not. These men experienced the love and wisdom of Christ, and it completely turned them around. Instead of continuing to walk away, they hurried back to Jerusalem and declared, it's true. We didn't think it was, but it is. They were leaving, and they come back to, to testify to the apostles. It was all true. We're sorry for leaving. We're here. We've seen him, and let me tell you about that. You see, the story of the road to Emmaus is such a powerful one for us. For those who have followed Jesus for a long time and now are wrestling with doubt, or those who are looking to meet him for the first time, this story helps us see the historical truth of the resurrection stories. That the Jesus movement shouldn't have made it, and yet it does. It shouldn't have persevered, and yet it did. It also shows us that even if we doubt that, if we struggle with that, even if we struggle to believe other people's testimonies around us, people who said, I've experienced God, I've seen him, I saw him at the tomb, even if we struggle to believe that, even if we feel like we've lost or are losing hope, this story shows us that Jesus cares and desires to call you back to himself. It actually says no matter where you are, he'll come out and get you. He'll walk with you even if you're going in the wrong direction. He'll tell you about who he is. He'll teach you about who he actually was, is into a point in which it makes your heart burn. Jesus will walk with you patiently, revealing himself to you more and more if you let him. And to the day in which your eyes are open and you're able to declare like these two men, it is true. For the Lord has appeared to me and now I want to share it with you. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for meeting us where we are. Thank you for constantly caring for us. Thank you that even as we walk away, you come to get us. God, we all pray that you continue to teach us, that you continue to help us see who you really are. Lord, we all pray that we can experience your love, that kind of love that just we know deep down in our hearts. Even if we can't see you with our eyes, we can feel you with our hearts. God, we pray that you continually call out to us, that you continually draw us to yourself, and we pray that you give us the courage and the boldness to proclaim if we've seen it. It is true. He has risen and he's appeared to me. We pray all of these things through the power of your Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward, uh, and then we will stand and we'll sing our closing song together.